But if you want to talk about how you can be successful, from my perspective, really learn the record. So the client is going to turn to associates and ask them factual questions, not to quiz them, but because they need to brief their own management and because they want to understand the matter and think about who the next witness is that, that we should speak to, are there potential disciplinary issues? Really mastering the record is critical. Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. Now let's get started. Welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with my friend and healthcare industry lawyer, Adam Yaffe. Adam is currently a senior counsel for litigation and government investigations at Bristol-Myers Squibb, which is based in Princeton, New Jersey. Before going to Bristol-Myers Squibb, Adam was a trial attorney for the Healthcare Fraud Strike Force at the United States Department of Justice and an associate at Williams & Connolly in D.C. He started his legal career as a law clerk to Judge Anita Brody of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania and Judge Morton Greenberg of the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Before law school, Adam was a deputy press secretary for the Congressional Joint Economic Committee and a Fulbright Scholar in Jerusalem. He was a graduate of Yale Law School, Go Bulldogs, and Duke University, Go Blue Devils. And I'll just add, this is a particularly fun interview for me as we've known each other for a long time as we attended summer camp together about 25 years ago. So little did we know we'd be talking about our legal careers all these years later, but I'm super excited to welcome you to the podcast. Jonah, thank you so much for having me. Like you said, this is pretty incredible. I think we've known each other since we were 12 years old, playing soccer and fighting during color war. Totally. So it's really an unbelievable experience. And also as children of rabbis who, who know each other and have been colleagues for many years, definitely a unique connection here. So I really appreciate you you having me on. Awesome. Look, I want to start by talking about your path to becoming a lawyer and what made you decide to enter the legal profession in the first place. And maybe a little more specifically, was the plan always to work in the healthcare industry? Sure. So building on actually what I was just saying, I, as a child of a rabbi, and I think you can relate to this, there always were topics for conversation around justice and current events and what was going on in the world. And I'm sure you you similarly grew up with those dining room conversations. And Absolutely. so with that as a backdrop, I just got interested in, in politics and policy and justice, and it was simply a, a no-brainer. So before I went to law school, I decided to take two years just to pursue other interests. And so right after college, I went to Israel for the year, and I had been doing in college a lot of AIDS advocacy work. And th this actually goes back you really want to go back to childhood to, to my favorite basketball player being Magic Johnson. It's something hmm. as simple as that. And being, uh, I don't know, eight or nine years old, standing next to my mom, watching Magic give a press conference, explaining why he was stepping away from, and being given the, the Ryan White biography in fourth grade to read and to just start learning about these issues and studying these issues. And so when I, I got to college, I had the good fortune of participating in the Robertson Scholarship Program where we do summers of service. And so I spent my first summer uh, at Aid Atlanta, which was an HIV AIDS organization, and we were doing outreach and testing. So we were actually, this was a different time. Uh, I'm not sure. that old, but it, we had great medication. Obviously, antiretroviral treatments were available, but it still was a very terrifying disease. There still was a lot more stigma around it. And so it was, I thought, very meaningful work and actually counseling people following their results. So we would give, her the, give them their test results and then counsel them on um, what that meant for them, whether that means finding resources for them, whether that meant how to share that with their family. We had gone through intense training and it opened my eyes, I think, to, to the world of of what healthcare meant at a personal level. And so from there, uh, I spent the next summer in, in South Africa, in Cape Town, where obviously 
to this day, HIV AIDS is a major story. And so I wanted to really just continue working in the space, but it just it impacted people. We all, unfortunately, have to deal with the healthcare system, no matter what. Hopefully it's later in life, but there are a few areas that touch every single person, regardless of your circumstance. So no matter your wealth, no matter your status, you will have both positive and, and negative, um, unfortunate encounters with the healthcare system. And I thought from a policy perspective and just from um, an impact perspective, it, it was fascinating to me. And so I think that's what sort of started me on this journey. After college at that point, I wanted to continue sort of doing this work, but I also was looking to go to Israel. I, I had spent some time there as a kid and I thought this would be a great opportunity before I got on the law school track, as, as your students know. And so I was able to, fortunately, to combine my interests and do HIV AIDS work in Israel. I, I really enjoyed it and the year was up and unfortunately I needed to come home. And so I wanted to continue to, to work in politics and work in policy. And so I headed to DC as, as many people do at that point in their career. Exactly. It was great. And so I, I slept on an air mattress on my college friend's apartment floor, interning for free for, for Senator Menendez from my home state, the, the garden state, and um, looking for a full-time job. And so fortunately, through a very close friend from college, I was able to, to get an interview and, and ultimately work for the Joint Economic Committee, which was then chaired by, by Senator Schumer from New York. And so I, I moved into to an apartment and I spent the year, you know, as, as a deputy press secretary, it was 2007 to 2008. So we're gearing up for presidential election, we're holding hearings and writing press releases and meeting with members and meeting with constituents and anyone who, who can spend a year on the Hill, I, I right. highly recommend it. There's, I think, no better experience especially for, for a future lawyer. And so it was great. And then I finally realized it was time to go to law school. What I love about that story also is the idea that that your time before going to law school can be really powerful, um, whether that's in college or ideally taking a few years off in between. I can say from my current student population that I work with, more and more people are taking that time off. And people often ask law schools, what should I do at that time? And there are the traditional answers of go work on a campaign or go work as a paralegal at a big law firm. But I think the better answer is go do something that you're passionate about and get some experience of any kind. Go live in the world. And the challenge, I think, for people who go straight through, and I, look, I know a lot of those people, I've interviewed a lot of those people, is that they they have to both become an adult and become a lawyer at the same time. Uh, and that can be really challenging. Whereas if you can become an adult and sleep on your friend's floor and try some new things before law school, it can make you both a better law student and a little bit more prepared for entering the legal profession. Yeah. Look, students hear this, but if I had one piece of advice, if you, if any way you can, and everyone's life circumstances are different, Absolutely. obviously. So financially, personally, I, I do not want to, to speak for everyone. You, you have to do what's best for you. But if there's any way you can, take some time. You're going to be a lawyer for decades of your life, decades of your life. And the fact that you can steal, and I'm going to use that term, steal a year or two of your life to do something exciting and interesting, even if it is to be a paralegal. So what? Go work in an office. I'm sure you've never really worked in an office before. See what that's. Go out on some dates. Go learn a new city. I, I think that is invaluable. I would not trade that for the world. And I would tell any college student, it's not going to stop you from going to law school. Like I said, I took the LSAT when I was a junior in college. I wasn't worried that I wasn't going to somehow go back 
You can tell that to your parents. But if you have the chance, it will benefit you professionally. It will honestly, if you need to look at it that way, you will be a more appealing candidate both to law schools and to for jobs because they will have seen that you have some life experience. But more importantly, you will just grow. And and I would highly recommend students take advantage. Absolutely. So look, let's fast forward to becoming a healthcare lawyer all those years later, having gone from working on the ground, both in the United States and abroad, to now working for the United States government in the in an office responsible for going after people who are making the healthcare system and using it to their benefit as opposed to the benefit of their patients. What was the thought process of, of making that jump? And maybe talk a little bit about what you did with the strike force. Yeah, absolutely. So w- when I did get to the firm, I would just say I walked in the first day, and the way it works with Williams and Connolly is that they just give you cases. So here are your cases, your teams, you don't know anything about them. They don't really ask what, what you've done in the past, whatever needs to be staffed. And I had the good fortune of working with really an incredible mentor or partner named uh, Paul Dufert. And he was representing a, a large generic pharmaceutical company it's public on, on a number of different matters. And I, I just had the really good fortune of being assigned to that team. And I got to work in the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry. I, again, I didn't have an opportunity to express a preference, but it worked out really well. And so we got to do civil complex civil litigation. It was called False Claims Act work. And that was in state and federal court. And I was I had the opportunity to take depositions, to defend depositions as a young and then even I think what was even more interesting was that there was a congressional investigation um, into generic drug price increases. And so I got an introduction to to pharma, to healthcare industry, something that I really hadn't had before. I had mostly been doing advocacy work. So, you know, it was great. I loved sort of being on my feet. I loved interacting with witnesses, meeting people at the company and working with this team. But I'd been there for, I think, three years. And as any sort of young, hungry lawyer, I wanted to run my own matters. And I had always had a real interest in criminal law. I, I think it's exciting. It's thrilling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to continue working in the healthcare space. And so this just seemed like the perfect opportunity. And I feel incredibly fortunate to have had the chance to go into the criminal fraud section, which I really believe is sort of the finest collection of white collar lawyers in the country and focus exclusively on healthcare work. And I also think, again, for any any young litigator who's interested in, in getting on your feet and, and having that experience, I, I highly recommend it. What I will say, though, is when you show up, it can be a shocking experience. And Absolutely. I had been at this firm, you know, it's well resourced, it's clean, it has everything you need. And I get to DOJ and they say, okay, you're going down to to Miramar and you're going to join a team uh, of FBI agents. And so I thought, okay, great. So I I get down and they send us to uh, a warehouse and there was not reliable internet. There was an occasional iguana or reptile wandering around. It was in the middle of nowhere, South Florida. There was one bathroom, didn't, didn't always work. And there was a team of lawyers and FBI and HHS OIG agents making cases uh, of criminal healthcare fraud. And so it was eye-opening um, trying to describe this to, to my family. But I will tell you, it was the single best professional experience of my life. You have an opportunity to work with just honorable, dedicated public servants day in and day out. And our job was to hold people accountable for committing healthcare fraud. And in South Florida, healthcare fraud is rampant. You have an elderly population, so there's a lot of Medicare fraud, and there are a lot of dollars passing through South Florida. And unfortunately, there's a culture of corruption. And so we pursued pharmacy owners. We pursued uh, unscrupulous doctors, nurses, 
you name it, any individual who had the opportunity to to build a Medicare program, unfortunately, individuals down there would use their Medicare card like an ATM card, and they would accept kickbacks in order for a provider to build a Medicare program and get a cut. And you are building these cases through investigations. We worked very closely with the U.S. Attorney's Office. The Southern District of Florida has an unbelievable expertise in, in pursuing healthcare fraud. And so we partnered with them. A trial I did of, of a, a doctor down there was with uh, unbelievably experienced AUSA that we prosecuted in Fort Lauderdale. But you just work day in and day out to do the right thing, to try to return dollars to the U.S. government and also just to protect patients because there are a lot of people who are being taken advantage of in this situation. Yeah. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that actually looks like. Like, how do you sit at a table with all these people with these different sort of expertise, these different backgrounds? You're still a lawyer. You're still the same lawyer when you left the firm and when you walked into the warehouse. But what was your day-to-day like? And maybe how was that different than your day-to-day life when you were preparing sort of white collar folks for depositions? Look, the, the agents are so good down there. And they're so experienced that you, first of all, you have to remember, and this is good for any young lawyer, that you think you you know the most, but you know the least. So I, I really didn't know anything about building uh, criminal healthcare fraud cases. I had done some criminal pro bono work at the firm, but nothing in the healthcare space. And I hadn't, it was defense work. I hadn't generated a case, but they have done so much work. They have cooperating witnesses, which is something on TV and you hear about, but people who have pleaded guilty and are looking to, to curry favor with the government. And they will provide leads. And a lot of it is still, I think, sort of, let me put it in sort of two ways. On the one hand, you're right. It, you're out in, in apartment buildings, meeting with witnesses. You're at the federal detention center, meeting with witnesses who have to be uncuffed in order to speak with you. And these could be medical doctors, licensed pharmacists. And that's incredible. But on the other hand, there actually is overlap with work you would do in preparing civil litigation. Because a lot of the work that we do is analysis of financial records. Right. So we often would charge money laundering, concealment money laundering. And so what you have to do is you have to subpoena banks and you have to what's called schedule the banking and look to see patterns of where the money is going. And that actually was similar to, to working as a white shoe law firm. It's just that when you find out where the money was going, you might next day be heading to the federal detention center in downtown Miami to confront uh, a witness about it. Hmm. And there, it was trying to balance all that while at the same time dealing with very overzealous defense attorneys in Miami. And it's a unique breed. And I, I learned quite a bit from them, but they're trying to, to advocate for their clients. And so you need to balance their demands to, to advance the, the needs of their client, while of course, making sure that you're doing the right thing and honorably representing the Department of Justice. And it, it's an unbelievable balance. And I think you have to truly see it to believe it. But if you can imagine in the morning going into the warehouse going over spreadsheets as to where the money we believe flowed. So it goes from Medicare, it goes into a bank account. All of a sudden you see an individual and in his bank receipts that he's buying uh, tickets to Disney World and cruises, okay? And then you look at his Facebook page and for whatever reason, these people still think it's okay to post on their Facebook page, the cruises and the Disney World trips. And you don't believe that there's any other sort of viable source of income here. Then in the afternoon, you're taking those spreadsheets, you're taking your outline, and you're going to the federal detention center to interview a cooperating witness who's going to provide information about this individual because they were probably partners in this business. And then you're going home in the evening and you're starting to think about exhibits for the grand jury. 
So that could be a regular day in the healthcare fraud strike force. And I, I feel very lucky to have had the chance to, to have done that work. Wow. And I guess one of the challenges, I think, and I, I talk to my students about this all the time, the challenges of you get great training at law firms, not universally, everybody has their own experience. But on the whole, I think law firms give you really good detailed training on the tasks of big firm lawyers. But one of the challenges is to see a case from start to finish at a big law firm sometimes never happens. These cases take forever. Um, you may only be brought in for a piece of it. Were there things that you learned from being able to see the case from the first inkling of it coming into the office all the way to seeing it at trial that you now realize um, helps you understand sort of the life cycle of a case in a way that you wouldn't have if you didn't see the whole thing from start to finish? Yeah. So I think what's interesting, and, and I would be interested in hearing from a plaintiff's lawyer, and you've spoken to folks, because at the firm at the end of the day, usually a company has been sued. And so they come in and they look for you to defend the matter. But when you're building a case as a prosecutor, you don't know if there's a case there. And hmm. so what you have to figure out, and you have limited resources and everyone is stretched thin. And so what you have to do is start to, to figure out, is this a good use of our resources? And I think to your point, when you're really starting from, from scratch, from the very beginning, the best thing you can do is lay out in front of you, okay, who are the key witnesses and what are they saying? What is the key evidence and what does it look like? And what steps can we take to develop that evidence and develop our witnesses? And it's challenging because you often can spend hours or days or weeks with a matter that goes nowhere. And then ultimately you have to walk away. And so I'm getting a little away from what you're saying, but I do think the difference of, of building something from the beginning and knowing that it might not lead anywhere versus defending a matter where substantively you have work no matter what is just professionally and psychologically a very, a very different experience. I think when you talk about trial, and I think Williams Connolly is, is unique in that they truly do approach every case with trial in mind. And, and that's not just a, a statement, it, it's reality. But when you actually get to trial, when we're trying this case in South Florida, what you realize is that witness interview that you did in week three of this matter, actually, it, it, it mattered. And it's hard to keep up that level of concentration when most matters, especially criminal matters, don't ultimately go to trial, especially civil matters don't go to trial. But those statements that your key witness provided early on before they became a cooperator can really come back to hurt you. And it's only if you see the full case from start to finish, and you realize what could have been done differently, do you understand how serious that can be for, for your case? Hmm. And one of the things that you keep coming back to, if you don't mind me summarizing a little bit, is this idea of lawyer as developer of fact. And I think not everybody realizes that when they say, when you're a kid, they often say, oh, you're good at arguing, you'll make a great lawyer. And I find that they're going to be a good lawyer when I see them starting to ask questions of what happened and why it happened and the order of events in which it happened. That sort of fact development piece is such an important part of being an effective lawyer. And it's not always the most talked about piece. And it sounds like one of the things that you really learned in your sort of first decade of practice is that fact development angle. Absolutely. Master the facts, master the record. Honestly, you can't do anything else without it. It's not always the sexiest, although I think can be the most interesting because it's a narrative that you're learning and that ultimately you're going to have to convey, whether it be to a, a senior partner, a senior associate, uh, a judge, a jury. And if you don't know the facts, you will be exposed quickly and you cannot be an effective lawyer. You can know the law, 
you can argue, you can yell, but at the end of the day, if you don't have the factual underpinning necessary to advance your argument, it's totally meaningless. Yeah. And you and who else is going to go out and get it but you, the lawyer, along with all the investigative power that you have behind you? Look, I want to I want to switch gears and talk about your current role. So how'd you get to Bristol Myers Squibb and what do you do every day? On a personal level, look, I, I love DOJ. I, I had really think it was just an unbelievable opportunity. I've said that now multiple times. And it was just a, a chance to do really meaningful work. Unfortunately, during the last uh, 12 months of my time there, I spent about three and a half years there. My mom was going through a, a very challenging battle with cancer. It was her third unique cancer diagnosis. She had breast cancer. She had thyroid cancer. My mom was uh, a brilliant businesswoman, dedicated to family, to Judaism and just had a major influence uh, on my life. And it was her third battle with gallbladder cancer that, that ultimately took her life. And it was very difficult for the family. I had incredible support from the team at, at DOJ. It makes you reevaluate where you are professionally and personally. And I learned a lot about oncology and oncology med- medications and cost and side effects and what that meant for patients. And it it led me on a a journey of personal self-exploration. And so I was interested in doing some work in the oncology space. And I think you can tell from my background that I I have jumped around a little bit and and sought to explore uh, new opportunities. And I had the chance to join Bristol-Myers Squibb, which you know, is really dedicated to the development of oncology medications. And so the chance to contribute in any small way to the development of life-saving drugs was very meaningful to me. And they had an opening for someone to work on litigation and government investigations, which is um, exactly the type of work I had done at the firm and at DOJ. And it seemed a great chance to make a a transition. Wow. And I've talked to some in-house counsel, but none, I think, who focus specifically on litigation. That's a different kind of in-house counsel. How does your role differ from when you were boots on the ground, either on the prosecution side or the defense, now that you're managing litigation and investigations in-house? Yeah, so it's interesting. So I tend to focus more on the investigation side just based on my background. So we have a lot of complex civil litigation work that we do. And I have two extremely talented colleagues who came from very prominent law firms in New York where they were doing very advanced civil litigation work, products liability, antitrust work, and they tend to handle more of the civil litigation. The biggest difference, obviously, is that you have to keep the business interests in mind and Mm. you cannot just fight at all costs. So whether that means the actual cost uh, of the litigation, but or more importantly, um, as the outside lawyer, you you want to talk to every single witness, to, as I said, to develop your factual record. But you may not be able to just call the CEO and set up a meeting. And you may not be able to just get to the head of, of oncology and, and set up a three-hour prep session, as, as right. the lawyers are inclined to do. And that's really important. Also, when you contemplate settling the case, what's the potential reputational damage? It's not just a matter of legally, will you win? And I think it's something that... I really didn't contemplate, even when I was an associate at a law firm, what that really means practically for for the client. But investigations is actually similar to what we were discussing, which is developing the factual record. So it's interviewing company witnesses, often internationally, and learning about what happened or what didn't happen for that matter, and trying to, to work with outside counsel, to work with the business, to try to understand what the potential liability may be for the company. And then more importantly, what remediation measures can we put in place to help avoid these problems going hmm. forward? 
And you also have to wrestle with with legal issues that are unique to individual countries. And what are the data privacy uh, restrictions on what we can and can't take from a witness? What about cross-border data transfers? What about attorney-client privilege limitations? And so that that was really a new universe for me. And it's something that I, I continue to work on and, and learn every day. And how much of this work, and obviously each business is different, but how much of this work are you the one doing the investigation versus uh, hiring outside counsel to do that kind of work? We often partner with outside counsel. We work with incredibly talented counsel who have experience in, in the industry and in conducting internal investigations. And we may do some preliminary work, but when we're dealing with a matter of this magnitude, which often means that the government may become interested in it, not necessarily is, but may become interested in it. We, we work very closely with outside counsel. And I guess the other question I have, because this is an area, candidly, that I don't know a whole lot about, is how do you get involved as a young lawyer in the outside counsel investigation work? Is it often through a litigation lens that then transitions into investigations, or is it finding the firms and the people who do this kind of investigatory work? So, look, all major law firms in Washington and New York and, and elsewhere have this type of practice. It, it generally speaking is a white collar and investigations practice. That's often how it's classified. That can mean different things at different firms. Sure. Some firms have really dedicated investigations practices where they really are, are focused on conducting internal investigations, even outside of your traditional white collar work. And so you can seek out firms that, that specialize in that area we're closely with DLA Piper, which has a, has a very successful investigations practice. And there are numerous firms that do that. So I don't think you'd have trouble finding a firm that does that. I think when you get to the firm, you have to express your interest in that area. But if you want to talk about how you can be successful, but from my perspective, really learn the record. So the client is going to turn to associates and ask them factual questions, not to quiz them, but because they need to brief their own management and because they want to understand the matter and think about who the next witness is that, that we should speak to, are there potential disciplinary issues, really mastering the record is critical. And that might mean spending extra time when no one tells you to go back through interview notes and to make your own witness chart and to keep bullet points on, on the critical witnesses. Uh, I think that is, is by far the most valuable thing you can do. The other thing, I'm not telling law students to go out to Middlebury and learn a new language, but language skills are becoming increasingly important. Obviously, we've been saying that for decades, and that's not really new, but I see a difference from when I was in college or even a young associate to now, where there are more and more young lawyers with true language skills. And, and I will say this even myself, I don't mean you took high school Spanish because it's not going to work in an interview. But if you are, are truly spent time abroad, if you are bilingual, obviously, but even if you are really comfortable, it is a huge advantage because so many of our investigations are being conducted abroad that the ability to have someone who's comfortable in the other language, even if the interviews are done in English, but to read documents, to understand sort of cultural cues and to be able to translate that sort of literally and figuratively for the client and, and for the partners and for the team um, is invaluable. We're at a moment in history and society where pharmaceutical companies are at the forefront. Everyone's talking about vaccines. Everyone's become an armchair epidemiologist. Where do you see the pharma law path going in the future? Is this a growing industry? Are there new ways for lawyers to plug into the, the, the pharma industry? What role are lawyers going to play in this new pharmaceutical age that we're going to be living in? Yeah. So 
I look at it two ways. So one is it gets back to what I said earlier, which is we, we all need medicines, right? We will all take them. It is part of our life. It is part of the, the way society functions. We cannot avoid medications. And so this is not an industry that is going away. It's a necessary part of society. It helps save lives and helps extend. And we obviously saw that with the vaccines. That's just an, an extreme example, whether it's a blood thinner medication or a life-saving oncology product. So it's something that you don't have to worry about it is going to disappear. If, however, you want to think about it as a young lawyer, I would actually focus on two areas that I, I was personally not as involved in. So one is regulatory work. Like, it is one of the most regulated industries in the world in, by the United States government. Anyone who follows politics and policy and legislation right now knows that a key component of the Build Back Better legislation revolves around drug pricing. It's a highly sensitive topic. It's an interesting area. And there will be constant changes in this space. For mm-hmm. the rest of if you're a law student right now, this will be at play for the rest of your career. So if you're interested in that area, there are firms that you can go and specialize on drug pricing policy, and you name it, the regulatory work involving the pharmaceutical industry. I'm diving more deeply into that. I think it's fascinating. And I think it's a great space to to pursue if that's something mm-hmm. that you're interested in. Um, and then the other side of things is doing M&A work, because what we're seeing is a golden age for emerging biotechs that then get scooped up by behemoth pharmaceutical companies. And so if you're interested in mergers and acquisitions, if you're interested in, in financing, I think that's a, a great way to get involved in the space that you may not have thought of. Look, we're coming towards the end of our time, and I always like to end these interviews by by asking for some advice, and you've given a bunch of it, so I want to ask it in a particular way. You've taken a bunch of pivots during the course of your career, and we talked about the why of those pivots. Um I guess I'm curious what you would recommend to not necessarily, it could be a law student, could be a future lawyer, could be somebody a couple of years out who wants to take on something new, but is afraid as lawyers often are of taking the risk of leaving after three or four years, you finally have your feet under you and trying something new. What's your advice to somebody uh, who's in that position of, I know I'm a lawyer, I have this opportunity, I want to pivot. What do you say to that? You don't want to have any regrets. And so you should go and, and seize that opportunity. To be clear, that doesn't mean jump every, every six months. And I obviously didn't talk about opportunities I didn't pursue, but it's the only way I think to sort of to grow as a lawyer. I think it's a chance to learn different areas of the law. I hope to practice for another 25 to 30 years. I really do because I love the law and I, I, I love the work and I still have a lot of work ahead of me. And so I, I think, especially when you're younger and it's a little easier geographically and, and personally and, and financially and professionally and so forth to, to take those opportunities. And I, I believe it will make you a better lawyer. And so I think that's something to keep in mind. A related piece and something to end on is don't let this consume you. So I've just talked to you about traveling to South Florida every week for, for two years to, to do this work and moving to DC and I was living in Philly and, and Israel. And I've loved it and it's been exciting, but this profession can consume you because it's demanding. I'm telling you to pay attention to detail and to spend that extra time learning that that can quickly take up your life. And so I will end on a personal anecdote, which was I I was clerking in Philadelphia and I was working for an appeals court judge and we had a a draft opinion due. And I know Professor Perlin dealt with this as well. And so there's a lot of pressure to, to get this done. I worked for a, a phenomenal judge. You're trying to do your best. And I had set aside on a Friday night, I was going to proof it. I was going to really go through it. You've spent all, all week, but you haven't really had sort of some peace and quiet to just focus on sort of the specifics. And I get a call from a, a friend of mine in Philadelphia 
who says it's for, for the Jewish listeners, it's Shabbat Pesach. So it's a Shabbat during Passover. There's a Shabbat dinner at Penn. Why don't you, you know, take a break and, and come join us. A, a, a few friends are going. And so I, I was reluctant and I really wanted to finish this. And I had set aside all this time and just got badgered about it. So I said, fine, I will go. And so I go to this dinner and I meet sitting across from me, a, a beautiful, brilliant medical student telling me about her work. And I will tell you that eight years later, we have a four month old son. Okay. So if I had not, you know, taken that break, who knows what would have happened. Hmm. And so just something to keep in mind after telling you about paying attention to the record, paying attention to, to, to every little aspect of, of your work, to pursuing new opportunities, to traveling and so forth, to remember that you need to, to ha- have a personal life and, and to take those opportunities as well. And so I, I hope that young law students can understand that. Absolutely. That's Look, that's a good reminder for everybody. That's a good reminder for people 15, 20 years out too. The law can be all-consuming and it's only up to you, especially if you like it. You and I love what we do. And that makes it harder actually to turn off and focus on friends and family and community. But I think you're absolutely right. That's so important. And I just feel grateful that you've been a part of my community for a uh, long time, uh, probably longer than most other people I know to this day. So look, Adam, it's been great chatting. I hope we can obviously continue our conversations about this. And I just grateful you took the time. No, thank you for having me and, and look forward to seeing you in person in 2022 as the world opens up again. 